This is Talk of the Nation. I'm Jennifer Ludden in Washington. A troubling new video has reinvigorated the debate over special needs education. A father was told his special needs child was unruly, so he sent him to school wearing a wire. On the recording, his son is harassed and mocked by a teacher and aide in a special needs classroom. The video is only the latest example of a widespread sense of frustration about special education. What to do? Advocates often want special needs students to get their own classes, but school districts say that's expensive, and certainly in a time of budget cuts, mainstreaming is on the rise. If you're the parent or teacher of a special needs student, what works? Our number is 800-989-8255. Our email address is talk at npr.org, and you can join the conversation at our website. Go to npr.org and click on Talk of the Nation. Later in the program, why some schools are forcing kids off their bikes and into cars. But first, best practices for mainstreaming special needs students. Joining me now is NPR's education correspondent Claudio Sanchez here in Studio 3A. Hi, Claudio. Welcome. Good to be here. So uh, this is a trend that's been growing uh, in public schools, but it may, mainstreaming may not be a term that everyone's familiar with. Can you just tell us what it means? Mainstreaming means that a child's instruction takes place in a classroom with non-disabled kids regular kids, a decision based uh, often on the special needs uh, of that child. So yes, there's an attempt to have this kid feel inclusive, be inclusive, um, but often it has to be tailor-made. That's where something very crucial here has to happen, and that is that an individual education plan be designed for this child which calls for special accommodations, um, certainly special attention if necessary. And this is all, of course, uh, in the law, the 1975 law that actually was originally called the Education for All Handicapped Children's Act. It later became uh, the Individual Disability Education Act, um, and, and that was, for the most part, kind of reauthorized in 1990. So for decades, this, there's been this effort. So there was a sense beforehand that special needs kids were kind of shunted away and kept out of sight. Parents wanted them in the mainstream. And yet, as I understand it, there have been a, a lot of bad experiences in these mainstream classes. And remember, they weren't just shunted away. They were literally kept out of school. I mean, for many, many years, these kids were warehoused somewhere else, schools didn't deal with them. Um, it, it took several legal cases and challenges to that, most especially in, uh, in, in 1972 in, in Pennsylvania, which literally led to the uh, creation of the law. But you're right. Um, the problem has been money in many ways. Um, you know, there's been an acceptance that these kids can learn, uh, should be um, mainstreamed. Uh, but the money issue is huge. The federal government, when uh, it authorized this law, more recently said, we're going to contribute 40 percent. This is Congress talking. 40 percent of the funding for special education. To this day, it's never been more than 18 percent. So that means that local and state education uh, folks have to come up with the money somewhere. And we're talking about tens of thousands of dollars for every child uh, every year. So it's it's a very it's a very difficult problem for schools because they don't have the money. And I guess more so now with we've seen so many cuts at local school districts. Exactly. And certainly in, in this time of, of austere and, and, and very limited budgets, um, I mean, where do you go? 
um, the federal government is not coming up with more money, believe me. The states are obviously cutting left and right. So, um, I mean, often it comes down to litigation on the part of parents. And if you have a good attorney, sometimes they get money out of the district um, to pay for these services or to put the child in in a private uh, program. So um, this terrible, uh, painful video has surfaced of uh, this child's experience. Um, but I take it that's not a surprise to people who look at this field, that there's there's been a series of, of studies recently that show these kinds of instances. Uh, yes, although I would say that the, um, you know, it's um, it's difficult to really uh, document certainly every instance of abuse, but they are pretty common. Uh, you know, there are cases, there was one in Georgia, a 13-year-old uh, boy committed suicide after being s- sent to an 8 by 8 concrete block timeout room in Gainesville, Georgia, the public school there, for students. Uh, this was a place that they put students in for behavioral problems. Then there was, uh, you know, there are these uh, famous screaming rooms that some schools have where teachers put kids uh, when they're acting out, when they're out of control. And, uh, you know, there was that famous case, I forget where, it may have been Kentucky, where a, a child was who was misbehaving, a special ed kid, had been found stuffed in a duffel bag. Mm. I mean, you know, you, you hear about these things and you say, this this is this can't be, this has to be the exception to the rule, but you'd be surprised how often, I mean, some of these things aren't even uh, reported, but it happens. I think actually let's have a call now with Carla in Eugene, Oregon. Hi, Carla. Hi. Yes. Uh, well, that all sounds very familiar to me. My daughter was uh, has autism and was in force placed. I would say the the supposed uh, uh, process of the IEP team coming together is more often than not like a, the parent getting corralled into accepting uh, <clears throat> their predetermined uh, placement option. You didn't feel you had a lot of say in the individual no. plan for your child? Not at all. And um, so she was forced placed into a special ed room. She had been in a general classroom doing quite well, but at third grade I was informed they either go into this room or uh, if they can be independent in the general population, then they're fine. But otherwise they get shunted over into the special ed room where her behavior deteriorated rather than improved. And um, she ended up, you know, terrified all the time. I got 40 incident reports uh, many of which she'd been put into one of these closets like you're talking about for mm. up to 45 minutes to an hour and a half in a day. Oh, my. And <clears throat> she was terrified and frightened, and it, of course, just destroyed our family. So um, at the end of the year, uh, that year, after I'd been on the phone to the district and the, everybody under the sun, attorneys and whatnot, um, <clears throat> she ended up, uh, they recommended we put her in a psychiatric day treatment facility put her in a cab and send her across town to this psychiatric place, which was completely inappropriate for her. So I did get an attorney, you know, hired my attorney, and we proceed, uh, proceeded with uh, the process. Uh, we got a settlement, um, and we have since placed her in a private setting that is perfect for her and uh, uses only positive behavior supports. And within two months, she was a happy camper, and she's been doing awesome ever since. So, Carla, I'm so sorry to hear about all of that. Uh, what do you think would improve the system, though? What What would you say? Okay, s- what I think would improve the system is if the districts would go 
and observe what's working in private settings. And, and if the teachers, the special ed teachers, don't need to just be trained in special education, which has more to do with um, paperwork and um, things like that, they need hands-on behavior training. Uh, they need to be mentored. Um, they need to uh, have somebody come in and like a behavior specialist who's like a certified behavior anal analyst come in and critique and assess and refine their procedures and they need to have things that are more flexible in the moment like any time that my daughter misbehaved the teacher would call the um, service district which was like a third party that handled their problems and it would be like two weeks and then the service district would come in and recommend they use some kind of pictures to describe what my daughter needs to do just ridiculous uh, slow-moving, laborious procedures, and it was basically punishment-based rather than positively based. All right. Carla, well, thank you so much for sharing your story, and, and good luck. Thank you. Claudia, what are the requirements for teacher training? And, and, and I imagine that's expensive as well. Sometimes that boils down to, uh, again, the same thing I've been insisting on, which is money. Um, most teachers are poorly trained to deal with this population if they're trained at all and special ed teachers are very hard to find they're in short supply um, now it's important to mention here that the range of disabilities or uh, learning disabilities physical disabilities is enormous and we're talking about kids with uh, ADHD autism developmental emotional behavioral disorders dyslexia deaf and blind kids I mean it covers everything um, and I guess if you take a look at the position that I guess school boards or school districts are in, I mean, to have access to experts and to counselors and to advisors to cover the range of issues that some of these kids are dealing with um, can be very costly and very difficult. Um, and again, we're talking about a whole range of school districts, rural, small town, uh, yes, large city school systems that may have more resources, but still it's a very difficult problem. Um, I don't think that there is a training requirement, at least not codified in the law. But clearly, if you're going to have a law that says, here's what you have to do for these kids, here are the accommodations, here are the services that they're uh, legally, uh, that they should have legal uh, access to, then uh, you would think that the policies at the local and the state level would say, well, here are the resources that we have available. Uh, again, all of that kind of is moot when you consider that the only thing that districts can do often is to paper it over. Um, the uh, Carla was saying that you know the laborious, tr you know the laboriousness of this thing is 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 very real. You call someone, and maybe if you're lucky, in a couple of weeks, someone will intervene and do something. And whatever they do, it, it clearly is not enough. It just isn't. And the advantage that private operations have, of course, is that it's uh, it's um, you know it's it's the kind of help that every school should have, but can't afford. We're going to be joined by a, a, an expert in this area in a moment, but Claudio, in the last few seconds we have, are there any success stories out there that uh, that you have covered or that you're hearing about? I've seen um, and I've witnessed and done stories about programs or at least even within school systems that are that are struggling with this, um, you know, schools that are doing the right thing, that are, that are actually somehow putting together good programs, sufficient programs, and are responsive, and this is a key thing, that are most of all responsive to the parents. Who, know, who who 
listen to parents who listen to the children and say, let's work together, versus the adversarial relationship that seems to exist. Um, but there are few and far between. Claudio Sanchez, NPR's education correspondent here in Studio 3A. Thank you so much. You're welcome. We're talking about special education. How do you do mainstreaming right? Parents and teachers, call and tell us what works. 800-989-8255 or send us an email. The address is talk at npr.org. I'm Jennifer Ludden. This is Talk of the Nation from NPR News. This is Talk of the Nation from NPR News. I'm Jennifer Ludden. We're talking about public schools and how they handle students with special needs, mainstreaming the practice where schools put students with special needs into regular classrooms. It's been a trend for years, and with many schools facing budget cuts, it continues to grow. So how do you do it right? If you're the parent or teacher of a special needs student, what works? Our number is 800-989-8255. Our email address is talk at npr.org, and you can join the conversation at our website. Go to npr.org and click on Talk of the Nation. We're joined now by Thomas Hare, former director of the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Special Education Programs, and he's now professor of practice at Harvard's Graduate School of Education. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Uh, so with so much mainstreaming happening and schools saying they can't afford other options, can you give us an example of um, what can work, and I guess, you know, in a cost-effective way for a local public school district. Yeah, I, I think there's a few points that I would like to clarify um, from uh, the last remarks. Um, uh, one, uh, not all kids with disabilities require tens of thousands of dollars in resources. There's a lot of diversity among that, the population of children with disabilities, and some children require relatively little additional resources, and some children require uh, quite considerable additional resources. I just want to clarify okay. that. Um, and secondly, um, American education system has made a significant investment in the education of children with disabilities. Though I, I agree with uh, Claudio that the um, federal government could be giving significant amounts of uh, more money than they are giving and should be, in my view. I mean, there's, they um, said they were – he said that that was in the law, but it just never happened. It, it certainly hasn't, um, and it should, um, in my view, because, again, it puts too much of the fiscal pressure on states in local school districts. Um, and I think it should be a better partnership than it is. Um, uh, that being said, uh, there are there are schools um, that have done a very effective job of educating kids with disabilities in inclusive settings. Uh, I just finished a book on effective inclusive schools um, in which I looked at um, uh, schools, uh, three schools in particular uh, in the city of Boston uh, that were inclusive of both kids who had significant disabilities as well as kids with milder disabilities and uh, had uh, high test scores for both uh, uh, kids with disabilities as well as uh, kids who don't have disabilities uh, over a period of time um, who served these kids uh, in inclusive settings. I think a lot of the abuses you talked about earlier um, had to do with um, children who were in um, segregated settings. Um, and one of the things that we've learned, uh, and this is, this is not my opinion, this is well-established in research um, I just did a major research study here in Massachusetts that verified this, that in general, most kids with disabilities do better in inclusive settings, uh, particularly if they get the supports that they need, uh, significantly better. Mm -hmm. So the move towards 
uh, integration or inclusion or mainstreaming um, is it clearly has some some support in the data. Um, however, as you know, Carla's uh, comments in the previous uh, segment uh, pointed out, um, those settings have to be made. Um, uh, appropriate for uh, kids with disabilities to respond to their needs. Um, you know, her examples, I think, were, were perfect. Uh, her daughter needed people not to punish her behavior. Um, she had autism. Um, but what they need to do is, is teach her the appropriate behaviors in school and respond more positively to them. In the um, book that I just finished on, on inclusive schools, um, there are several things that emerge um, from these schools that I think other schools can do. Um, number one, uh, they look at their resources as, as um, um, in a sense, all being devoted to improving the instructional program for all kids. They don't look at the special ed budget or the bilingual budget. Um, there is a budget for the schools, and the schools use those resources effectively. Um, secondly, the principals of those schools and the teachers of those schools value disability, value the inclusion of children with disabilities, um, and they provide supports in classrooms um, for kids in those classrooms, but also provide opportunities for uh, teachers um, and school administrators um, to do um, problem solving around the issues that the, these children have. But one of the things that we, we found in this study um, was that, and this is from the teacher interviews, uh, and this is very deeply um, felt by the teachers, when they have figured out how to effectively educate kids um, who have uh, various types of academic and behavioral challenges uh, in typical classrooms, they feel that their classrooms are better for all kids. Hmm. And I, I think that, that it's important for people to start um, understanding that, that, that kids uh, who have disabilities... Um, have a right to be educated in inclusive settings uh, to the degree that, uh, that is appropriate. But people who run schools also have an obligation uh, to make sure that the teachers and the children get the types of supports that they need. All right. Let, we have a call from a, a teacher here, Mary in San Antonio, Texas. Hi there. Hi. How are you? Good. Um, I just um, say I'm a first-year teacher at one of the largest public high schools in San Antonio, and during my first year, I somehow managed to receive all of the special education students in the ninth grade um, because they thought it would be a good idea to stack them. Uh, so I have, out of 100, I have 70 um, special education students. And they're... Oh, we're, lo um, we're losing you a bit there, Mary. Your phone is fading. Sorry. There you are. Go ahead. Speak okay. up. Um, so I was just... I was just saying, out of 175 students, I have 70 special education students, and they range in disability, but um, some of them have been coming from middle schools where they have back units, which are behavior units, and essentially they're put in a room with seven other students, and they're sort of let to do their, you know, screaming or their, whatever their behavior issue is categorized as, and then all of a sudden, in high school, they get thrown into um, a classroom with 30 other students, and they're expected to behave. So, um, How's it going? It's been a, it has been a very steep learning curve. Um, I mean, like I said, it's still my, it's my first year. So in addition to all the normal first-year teacher learning, um, I also have an incredible amount of special needs students. And were, did you, Mary, did you get any training for the special needs kids specifically? No, I did not. I just had to be 
certified, which meant I had to take um, a test. Oh, okay. So what would you have liked to have seen done differently there? Well, I know for a fact that I needed more training. I did not know. I mean, I've learned a lot this year, but walking in day one, I didn't know how to deal with a student who was going to stand up in class and cuss at me for 10 minutes straight. I didn't know how to deal with a student who um, was really struggling with basic literacy and how to reach them. Um, I didn't know how to deal with a lot of the situations I've seen and a huge amount of emotionally disturbed students, and I needed more training. I needed so much more training, and I feel like I really, in some ways, failed these students this year. Oh, Mary, thank you for calling. Thank you so much. Thomas Hare, that's, um, that's hard to hear. What is, is there no training required uh, for st- mainstream classroom teachers who will have these students? Um, in most places, there isn't. And I would also say, in, in Mary's case, that um, I think we're very fortunate to have someone with her attitudes uh, going into the education profession. But it is, um, it, it, this is not a good practice that she described of, of assigning um, a, a lot of kids with disabilities to a brand new teacher. Um, so even if she had the best training, I would also want to see um, her having more support um, as it related to kids who had challenges in her classrooms. Um, again, one of the things that's uh, of the, the schools that I've done research in that are highly effective, teachers don't teach alone um, in these schools. They, they have other teachers that they work with, that they can problem solve with, that they can figure out what to do with, with these kids. And, and also, um, her description of these kids being segregated up until they went into high school is also very problematic. How are these kids going to learn the behaviors they need to have in, in, in school, but I would also say in life, uh, if they're placed in a segregated classroom with only kids like them? Hmm. All right, let's get another caller on the line. Kelly is in Clinton, New Jersey. Go right ahead. Hi, I have a question, actually. Um, my daughter was recently diagnosed with ap- epilepsy, and she has absent seizures. So mostly she blanks out. And um, for the first part of the year when we weren't sure what was going on, it was clearly they thought she was having behavioral issues, which I've, I've read a lot about that, and it seems to be a common uh, issue. Well, then she was diagnosed, and we've been putting on the medication, and the, the medication has uh, caused its whole own criteria of issues. And um, so my question is, you know, how it, it seems like it's a really um, – underrepresented disability. <laughs> so the teachers, the principal, the guidance counselor, I, ha- I feel like I'm having to educate them and that um, it's going sort of on deaf ears because they don't understand it and because it's sort of inconsistent and hard to understand their it's treated more negatively than proactively. All right. Kelly, thanks so much for the call. Uh, Thomas Hare, it does seem like in many cases the, the actual getting to the diagnosis is part of the, the battle, um, that people don't know what quite to do with kids and, and without a diagnosis. Or, I mean, what, what, what does qualify as special needs? Well, I, I think that um, uh, I think diagnosis uh, is very, very important. Uh, I think one of the things that... Um, is important for for both parents and for people in schools is to have an accurate understanding of the nature of a, of, of a disability that a child may have 
and in what are the accommodations and support that child may need. Many kids with disabilities don't necessarily need special education. Many kids with epilepsy, diabetes, um, various types of medical conditions may need uh, accommodations in schools, um, but they don't necessarily need um, special education. Uh, in the case that the, that the mom was just talking about, her daughter with epilepsy, I think what's important when you have, number one, is that child get a good diagnosis. But then uh, after that diagnosis, constantly revisiting um, how are the meds working, um, how are accommodations in classrooms working, and, and uh, with, a, with a positive attitude, the, the notion that this child has a right to go to school and, and to not be discriminated against because they have a disability. All right. Uh, we have an email from Kenny in San Rafael, California, um, who says he has a nonverbal learning disability on the Asperger's syndrome. He was mainstreamed until sixth grade, then went to a special needs school uh, for four amazing great years, and then was eventually mainstreamed back into a San Rafael high school. He says, I had amazing support from my parents in school and none of the problems that some of your guests have mentioned. I'm very sorry to hear about them. My only complaint was that I was not helped as much as I could have been with what to do with myself after high school. I've been struggling in college, but I think that may be a different story. So it's good to hear a good story there. Let's hear uh, from Dina in Nashville, Tennessee. Hi. Um, I am the parent of a 22-year-old young man who has an autism spectrum condition, and he spent the first 10 years of his school experience being presumed to be much less competent than he was. And we were very fortunate after 15 years of me being his attorney for me to be able to move to a small, uh, rather rural town in the Tennessee area that uh, fully included students with nearly all disabilities. There are only about five or six students with significant medical needs that spend uh, a portion of their day in a contained setting. And because of that full inclusion model, my son has developed phenomenal social competency. He graduated with a 3.1 honors diploma, and he was the manager of the ice hockey team. And as a result of that, he, you know, a lot of boys with special needs spend their time primarily around women caregivers and women special educators. But because of the hockey team, he not only learned how to be socially appropriate, but he kind of learned the guy code for social interaction, which is very different than what women would teach boys. Right. And um, I'm proud to say that he has developed the capacity to be independently functioning. I train around the country and leave him at home for four or five days at a time. He's had one successful semester away at college, and he'll be leaving for Marshall University's autism program in June. Dina, that's and wonderful. My, my theory is if they spend their whole day in a room uh, learning how to fold towels or make pizza boxes, even if they have the capacity for a GED without exposure to the general ed curriculum at some level, they're just not going to have success, and they do need to survive in the mainstream population. So we didn't know if a diploma was possible, but we knew that he needed an opportunity to learn as much as possible and to have those typical role models. Tina, thank you so much. Thank you. You're listening to Talk of the Nation from NPR News. Thomas Hare, a good story there. Uh, I think it's a great story, and um, I th I think it would it's important for listeners uh, to not come away from the show with a with a totally negative attitude. There are lots of success stories of students with disabilities, of school districts that have engaged in effective, inclusive practices uh, for kids. One of the things that uh, I'm 62 years old, and I started off in this field uh, back in the early 70s. 
And uh, we know so much more about how to effectively educate these students. Um, we, we, we know what effective practices uh, and, and, and the results of them can be. But one of the things that I think that Dina um, uh, alluded to was her early experiences in schools where people didn't believe that her son was capable. And that is very common. It's still common in the education system. Uh, it's what I refer to as ableism, many other people do as well, of kind of a prejudicial attitude towards disability. Um, and, and the most ableist assumption I think people make is that uh, children are, are not capable or as capable. Um, and some of the studies that have been done ar around uh, young adults with disabilities who have been highly successful is one of the factors that predicts whether they're going to be successful um, is the attitudes of their teachers um, and, um, and, uh, and, and their parents. Um, do they really believe um, and act on uh, assumptions of capability or do they focus all of their efforts on uh, the symptoms of disability and uh, negative approaches towards disability. And there's still far too much of that. But there are many, many, many success stories throughout the country. I have students at Harvard who have very significant disabilities who are um, students at Harvard University. Um, and those students are, are all success stories. And uh, so, again, I wouldn't want people to come away from this program um, thinking that there aren't uh, success stories because there are. All right. Well, we are going to leave it there on the positive note. <laughs> and uh, um, thank you so much, Thomas Hare, professor at Harvard's Graduate School of Education. He's a former director of the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Special Education Programs. His recent book is Effective Inclusive Schools, Designing Successful School-Wide Programs. And he joined us from studios at Harvard University in Cambridge. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Up next, it's one of the easiest ways to get kids moving again, so why don't more kids bike to school? We'll talk about what some schools are doing to discourage it and why. That's next. I'm Jennifer Ludden. It's Talk of the Nation from NPR News.